going to be in Psalm 129 today. Again, if you don't have a Bible, really encourage you to follow along um, in, uh, in your copy of God's Word. Um, and if you don't have one, sorry, if you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you, um, and, and it's on page 518, Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, as we we, uh, remember and recall each each week after the, the word is, the scriptures are read. It says that the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, again, we we come to you now uh, fully reliant upon your grace, fully reliant upon your grace to help us to to understand, um, reliant upon your grace to help us to become that which you um, are are working in us. Um, And so we pray today for, for understanding. Uh, for, for attentiveness to what your word says, and, um, and, and Lord, we, we rely upon you, um, again, as our confession, uh, that we rely on you um, and your grace for us. Um, thank you again for your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're uh, in Psalm 129 today. Uh, we're, we're working our, like we said last week, we're a little bit on the downhill of the uphill. Uh, we're on the downhill of the ascent uh, that, the, that the people of God are, are going through as they make their way uh, to the place and to the presence of God. Uh, and so we're reading through these psalms as, we've, as we have uh, talked about week after week, and you're probably getting tired of hearing me say this, but we're reading through these psalms through lenses that generally have been lens through which they've been read throughout history. Um, in fact, they're, they're helpful lenses to keep us from reading the Psalms either too narrowly um, and being disconnected from the whole of Scripture or from reading them too broadly by attempting to, to make them and connect them exclusively to all of our personal experiences. And so the people of God originally would not have uh, recited, read, um, called to memory the Psalms without being fully aware of the covenant that God made with his people. They would not have recited the Psalms without being aware that God is a merciful God. They would not have, um, I, I believe they would not have been unaware that there was coming one who would fulfill and embody these Psalms. Even later in history, the, the great apostles as the church began recited Psalms saying it is Christ who the Psalms spoke of when, when his body would not see decay. And so we read through the lens, these three lens of, of covenant, essentially that God has covenanted with his people, that God has covenant with his people and God cannot and will not fail in his covenant. And then we also read through the lens of God's character, that God acts in a way towards his people based on who he is. 
And so his covenant shows us that he cannot fail and he will not fail. His character shows us that he cannot change and he will not change. And so he's always operating and acting towards his people out of who he is. And so the helpful way that we've recalled this is that um, God is not uh, merely merciful because he shows mercy. No, he shows mercy because he is a merciful God. That's who he is in his character. And we also read through the lens of, uh, of, of a Christocentric lens that God has fulfilled his covenant promise with his people ultimately in the victorious life death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Um, and, and it is in him that we have faith. It is in him that God shows us that all these promises that I've made to you find their yes in Christ. Uh, that if he did, who did not spare his own son would give his own life, then he will not fail us in the covenant that he, that he has made with us. And so when Psalm 124, if you look back on Psalm 124, when Psalm 124 talks about the Lord who was on our side, it is not some abstract Lord, right? Um, it is not some abstract Lord being spoken of, but this covenant-keeping, merciful, and just God who acts and intervenes on behalf of his people, again, because of who Christ is, because of who Christ is. And so, Lord, here in verse 1 and 2, let's read this together again. Psalm 129, verses 1 and 2 says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And then in verse 4, they will recall that the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. And so Lord here, Lord in the Psalms, Lord in all the scriptures, is packed with meaning. And, it's, and it is the righteousness of the Lord that is spoken of in Psalm 129. And so, church member, we need to, we need to know this for, for our own lives today. This is universally for all time the truth and applicable to us. Psalm 129 is going to show us that it is because of this Lord who is merciful and righteous and gracious and just, that it is because of this Lord that the Christian life is not fragile and that it only flourishes only when the conditions are right. It, like the, the Christian life doesn't depend on the weather outside, does it? No, Psalm 129 is going to show us that the Lord sustains his people through all seasons of life, through all ups and downs of what we experience. And so the Christian life is not a fragile life that tears apart and that breaks apart and that falls apart when things are rough, but know that the Lord sustains. That's a testimony of the people of God right here in Psalm 129, that they have been afflicted from their youth. And they recall this testimony, yet, look what it says, they have not prevailed against me. Why? Not because we're tough, but because the Lord is righteous. Because the Lord is righteous. He is just towards the oppressive work of Satan in this world. He sustains his people. The people of Israel can say collectively, they have not prevailed against me. <clears throat> they have not prevailed against me. And so many of the principles in regards to the Lord's righteousness and his power have been developed in the Psalms. We've kind of, we've, we've worked out a lot of the faithfulness and the covenant-keeping nature of the Lord, and they are echoed and they're reinforced in this section in these first two verses. And so it's verses three through eight that we're going to spend the majority of our time on today. And we need to read this because uh, I'm, I'm going, if, if you're not asking some questions about verses three through eight, I'm going to 
implant some questions into your mind that you might ought to be asking. Um, and they're questions that uh, people have grappled with for a long time. They're questions that when we read it, we ought to, if, if we are serious uh, Bible readers, if we are serious when we come to the Scriptures and seek to understand who this God is, there are questions that we probably ought to walk away with that I believe that the Scriptures and the Lord Himself gives us some great clarity on. And so verses 3 through 8 take up the most space in this particular psalm. And so let's, let's read this together. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of of the Lord. And so we have here what might often be referred to as a psalm of imprecation or an imprecatory psalm. That sounds painful, right? Um, well, it, it's a little bit painful, uh, especially as we seek to understand it. But, but this is this here, we, we see some imprecation by the psalmist upon the enemies of the people of God, calling out to God. And so the imprecatory, the, the name imprecatory is a little bit misleading way to think about because I looked up what imprecatory means. And imprecatory essentially um, uh, connotes uh, a cursing that there is a cursing upon that who you are calling upon this prayer uh, against, that there is a, a cursing. And so a question that you are right and a question that uh, you are not alone in asking is, okay, how do I understand this? Can I just start praying these prayers over all the people that I don't like, right? Can I start praying these prayers over all of those people that have offended me and praying these prayers over all those who I feel have been oppressive? And, and also with that, doesn't Jesus say to pray for those who persecute you? Doesn't he say to bless those who curse you? And so what is the, the nature of these psalms and how are we to understand? And, and I want to address a couple of common ways that we just kind of move past them. And uh, there's, there's two, what I would say, unsatisfactory and incorrect uh, responses to these psalms. And the first is that these psalms are only for a particular people in particular situations, in particular historical context, and they have no relevance for us today. That these people face such a, such a, a, a heavy burden by those who are oppressing them that no one else has ever faced, and so there is no place for these, and Jesus, right? And then Jesus, like the, the, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Well, there's, a, there's another response that, as, as I've been studying this, is common, that, that there is some sort of disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that some wedge exists between the two Testaments on this teaching of praying for what uh, the psalmist needs to be praying for and then what we are instructed to in the psalms. And so today I want to take some time to teach some things that we see from the Scriptures on these psalms, because just as in 128 seems to be a general promise of the blessing for everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways, and then it goes on to give a specific example of how a man is blessed in his marriage and in his home, we don't, rec we don't, we don't read Psalm 128 and say, oh, well, the only people that are blessed are men who are married, right? No, that's not a good way to read the scriptures. 
There's a general promise and a specific example. I believe 129 is a little bit of the same thing, that there is a general declaration by the people of God that, that, God has, that, that, that the, people of, the, the people against God have not prevailed against the people of God, but then they go on to give some specific ways in which they are praying for the, the faithfulness of God to intervene. And so I want to teach just a little bit today on how to understand these, these psalms of imprecatory nature. And so I want to submit to you another way to think through these psalms rather than saying no relevance for us today, and whether than saying, especially not saying that there's some sort of disconnect between the Old and the New Testaments. And so I actually have, I made some fancy little slides. And so here's, here's what I want us to know about these psalms, okay? Here's, here's what I think it's important for us to know um, as we read these psalms, how to understand them and how to understand what God is trying to teach us and how he's trying to mold us and shape us and form us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. The first thing to recognize about those imprecatory psalms is that they are prayers to God and not a curse at man. Do you notice that? Look what, look what it says. It starts off with the declaration that the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder the sheaves of his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Curses are those things that are aimed directly at man without any kind of detour or consideration of God. And so when we read these, we, we see continually through the Psalms, there's many Psalms that fit this bill of what the imprecatory nature. They are always prayers up to God. They are, they are ways the people of God are crying out to God and asking God to intervene on behalf. The second thing is this. This is not only a prayer to God and not a curse at man. It's an appeal to God's covenant, which is why we read through the lens of the covenant nature of God. So what, is, so what does that mean? Well, if you're shocked by what the psalmist is asking the Lord to do here, um, in intervening, you should see what God has promised for the fate of those who, uh, who persist in evil. If, if you're shocked by how could the psalmist say this, well, we're, we're going to go back to see what God has actually said in his covenant. The psalms are not birthed from a, a warped and wicked mind, but a mind formed by God's word and God's covenant to his people. The psalmists are not just these like rogue individuals out in the world. No, they are deeply formed by God's word and God's covenant to them. God's whole covenant, the, the covenant that God had made initially with his people, with the people of Israel in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, says, says what? I will bless those who bless you, and, I will, and whoever curses you, I will curse. The whole foundation of the covenant that God has made with his people is the promise that I will bless you and whoever curses you and opposes you, there will be justice. And so, so the psalmist is simply calling upon what God has already promised that God will do to the evildoer, to, to that which is evil in the world. And so again, the people of God are praying in alignment with the very thing that God has told them he will do. The next thing that we need to understand is that there is no wedge between the Old and the New Testament on this matter. There is no wedge here. Um, and, and because people have believed that there is a wedge is where is kind of like the, the doorway to all sorts of other 
ways of, of believing wrongly about who God is. And so there is no wedge between the Old and New Testament. Put another way, no contradiction exists between the example of the psalmist and the command of Jesus in Matthew 5.44. No contradiction where, where Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. This is a, a see, what feels like a seeming contradiction, right? Well, the psalmist did this. Can't we do this? Well, no. Remember, as we have said before, if there is a, if, if there is a, a lack of understanding or a lack of clarity when we read the Scripture, the limit is not with the Word. It's always with us, right? Always with us. So just tell yourself that. I know that you know, earlier this week I went and picked up participation medals for my son's seven-year-old uh, t-ball team. Um, and and we, I was talking with Brian the other day about these participation medals. And just in our participation medal culture, just be okay with saying, I'm limited. <laughs> if, if I don't understand the word, it's not, a, it's not a limit with the word, it's a limit with me. I am finite, not God's holy word. And so Matthew 5.44 talks about the praying for those who are persecuted. There is no contradiction that exists between the Psalms and then the command of Paul in Romans 12, 19, and 20. Let's go there. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 and 20, if you would like to go there with me. We'll start in verse, we'll start in verse 14 here. We could really just read the whole chapter, but we'll read in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is verse 14, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is there some sort of contradiction in the instruction that Paul gives to the people of God and the example of of the psalmist, we would, say, we would say no, because if you read there in Romans 12, 19, uh, verse, 12, verse 19, you see it's probably written in quotes. Is, it, is that the case in your Bible? There's quotes. What is he quoting there? He's quoting what? Deuteronomy. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. You, you're welcome to go there if you want. But I, I'm, clearly, I'm just simply wanting you to see as you read the Bible, as you, be, as you become serious students of God's word, that the Old and the New Testaments are consistent in their opposition of personal revenge. They're consistent in that. So like I said, there's no wedge. It's not like the Old Testament taught this and the New Testament teaches this. No, the very law in and of itself, Paul is quoting to instruct the people of God in Romans chapter 12. And so the Old and New Testaments are consistent in this, and they are also consistent in that God is the only, is, is, is the one who will repay and will do so justly and in righteousness. Hey, when vengeance is left up to us, we may be right like sometimes, but what, we're not right all the time, are we? I think that's why God commands us to do that, because we are not omniscient. We are not all-knowing. We are not all-powerful the way that He is. And so when the Bible tells us, do not seek vengeance, I will be the one to repay. That is a consistent message 
from beginning to end. And so God is the one who will repay, and he will do so justly and rightly and in a way that is fair or whatever word you would like to use. The, the, the next thing that we need to see um, as we read this psalm, Psalm 129, as we read the psalms of imprecation, um, is that removing the justice of God is not an option. Removing the justice of God, removing the wrath of God is, is not an option. Now, here hear this, the justice of God is oftentimes hard to understand for us, right? Hard to kind of grapple with. I don't think we need to be as apologetic as the church has seemed to be about it, uh, because I think it ultimately leads to a message of of mercy, right? I, I think shirking back on God's justice and His holiness and His wrath will actually ultimately serve for us, whether we know it or not, as a hurdle to sharing about the mercy of God. And so the justice of God is a hard thing to understand, but removing that God is just is the more complex solution. I want to show you that. There, there, that's where weak attempts like karma come from. So what, like, where karma comes from is, is simply man's attempt at ridding God, ridding God of his justice, but then finding one's own system of justice. It's, it's, it's saying, well... God can't be just, but there's still a desire within all of us for justice to be done, for justice to be exacted. And, and karma is one of those ways that we've essentially not got rid of justice, we've just replaced who God is. And so no longer is God the exactor of justice, I am. I'm the one who gets to dictate what justice is and who deserves this justice. It's a fatalistic walking contradiction is what karma is, and it only proves that if God is unjust, then injustice will remain forever. Justice from God is one of the ways that we know that God is true to his covenant, that he will bless those who blesses his people, that he will curse those who curses those people. And so we're not going to be sentimentalists here. We, we endure what we endure as children of God, knowing that God has promised that evil will not forever persist. We're not just mere sentimentalists where we, we have a great deal of faith in that God is a God who is both merciful and just. And this isn't just the magical disappearance of evil either. It's not just some abstract disappearance of, of evil. It is the action of God in putting all of his enemies under his feet. The fact that God is a God of, of justice. And so here's, the, here's the, the final thing that I think is, is very helpful for us to see. As we, as we read this psalm. Con- conversion. That's, maybe that's kind of a, 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 a more modern term, but regeneration, justification, salvation is a satisfaction of God's justice. Conversion is a satisfaction of God's justice, which is why we read through a Christ-centered lens. Now, now what do I mean by that? Well, the scriptures are loud here. In fact, um, Psalm 83. Turn with me there, just a few pages back. Psalm chapter 83 is another one of these psalms that, that may kind of, you, you see the, the psalmist crying out for, for justice against those who persecute him. But look what the psalmist, it says a psalm of Asaph. Look what, look what it says in verses 16 and 17. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord, are the most high. 
over all the earth. The principle here reminds us of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln's quote. I remember hearing this in, in high school, Abraham Lincoln's quote, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And the, and the, the psalmist, one of the, the ways that the scriptures speak loudly here is that God is, is merciful, that he is just, and that he allows people time and opportunity to repent. He calls for people to turn from their wicked ways so that I may have mercy upon you, right? He, he, he says, I, I, I will not overlook your injustice. I will not overlook your sin, but you may turn to me and I will show you mercy. That is part of the, 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 the storyline of the book of Jonah, the, the Ninevites, where God is calling Jonah to this wicked people. And, and, and one of the, the popular things to do these days when we, as we try to diminish more and more the justice of God is to talk about, well, how could a loving God be so just? And the, the, real, the real question, the real question is, is how could a holy God be so patient with us and be so lavish with his mercy when we have turned our back on him time and time again? Let me just tell you this. If you do not have faith in Christ today, God is being patient with you. He is showing mercy towards you. He is, his judgment will come. His judgment will fall on you. As we've said before, one day every person in this room will stand before God. And so if you don't believe in him today, you will believe in him that day. And one day we will stand before God and, and God will no longer be patient and merciful towards your sin. But today he is calling you to turn to him. He is calling you to turn to him. So on, on this psalm, we were talking Wednesday morning, on this psalm, Spurgeon says, on the nature of the imprecatory psalms, Spurgeon says, we desire their welfare as men. Those who we, you know, those who, who maybe the psalm is speaking of, we desire their welfare as men and their downfall as traitors. We want, we want, the, their, men, we want their souls, as Psalm 83 says. We want, the, we want their souls and their, 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 uh, their well-being to be well. But the, but the ways in which they scheme against the, the people of God, we want their utter destruction. We want the utter destruction of the evil that exists in the hearts of people. And so in light of God's justice, we also recall God's mercy to those who do turn from their wicked ways. We see that story over and over again. I mean, just from a very factual standpoint, when you get into that, when you get in that conversation about God just being a wrathful God who just... No, there's, there's, there's literally hardly any examples in the scriptures where he has not invited people over and over and over again, turn to me so that I may show you mercy. Turn to me so that I, have you, so that I may have mercy upon you. In fact, we see in a place like Isaiah 55 how lavish the mercy of God towards those who forsake their wicked ways is, right? Isaiah 55, that we, we talk about that passage a lot here. Where, where God talks says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's him talking about how merciful he will be to the people who we think don't deserve the mercy, right? That is, that is God's way of saying, you, I, I, will, I will be so much more merciful to you than anyone else thinks that you, des, than you deserve. But my ways and my thoughts are higher than the thoughts of man who often go after men with vengeance, 
who often go after their persecutors with an, an un, a kind of vengeance that may be, in human terms, fair in some regard, but on the grand scheme of things is not very fair because we forget our own rebellion against God. We forgot that God was patient with us when he showed us mercy. And so we see that in a place like Isaiah 55, the good news of the gospel. The the good news of the gospel, the reason why we read this through a Christ-centered lens is that the good news of the gospel is that we were all once impending recipients of of, of God's justice. You realize that, right? The Bible says that to us many, many times and in many different ways. That if God were not patient with us, you would be a recipient of the impending justice and wrath of God towards your sin. And the Bible says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I would say that applies to your life, that at the right time, God spoke to your heart and awakened your, your soul to the reality of the weight of your sin, and he made you alive together with Christ. I had a card up here, Jim. Where, where'd my but God card go? Somebody took it. it where, where is it? Is it in there? I mean, yes, it's in the Bible in Ephesians 2. Uh, but, oh, here we go. But God, I'll, I'll show you that here in just a second. I've got, we've got some more of these too. So the good news of the gospel is that we were all once impending recipients of God's justice. But God, rather than being met with God's justice, Christian, you are met with God's mercy. You are met with the mercy of God, the punishment and the judgment for sin that awaited you has fallen on Christ, has, been, has, has fallen on Christ. Why, how can I possibly such, say such a crazy thing? Because Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we, we see that, hey, oftentimes as, as the people of God are calling upon the the, the mercy and the grace of God in their time of affliction. The man, I've, I've been in seasons of life where I've had those who I felt like were my enemies, that I came across a particular psalm, and I was like, oh, this psalm is awesome. I'm just going to pray this against that dude, you know? And it's like, well, okay, I, I, was, I had more of a, a heart of cursing man rather than praying to God, that rather than cursing man, I should have called upon God, God, be merciful to me, be gracious to me in sustaining me. I need more of your grace today, Father. I need more of that grace because as Psalm, which, which Psalm is it? Just a few Psalms where we were, Psalm 124, that if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, then why would we would have been, when the people rose up against us, then we would have been swallowed up alive. That in those moments, rather than throwing curses at those who maybe I should pray for God to, to be faithful and to remember my own, my, the, the mercy that God has shown me, that I need more and more of his grace today. The, the, the truth is about this psalm, uh, there, was, there was a couple ways that, that I think this psalm, that, that, that as we read the psalm, that we could draw from. There's, there's several examples and several ways that we can understand this psalm. I believe it's a psalm mingled with sorrow and resolve, Right? It's a sorrow mingled with sorrow that, hey, you know, we, we've been afflicted. In fact, the psalmist calls upon the, the whole congregation to say it with them. Greatly have we been afflicted. But he recalls the, the testimony, however, yet they have not prevailed 
against me. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords. He has, he has um, cut the cords of the wicked. And so this psalm, again, mingled with sorrow and resolve, is often characteristic of all of our testimonies, right? If you look back on your own testimony, just as a way of application today and a way of encouragement, that even if you look back on your own testimony over the years, is it not one mixed with both sorrow and mixed with resolve? Or, or maybe, maybe resolve is not a great, maybe, sorrow's, maybe resolve is not the, the greatest way, say, as if, you know, I just kind of pulled myself through that. God's grace, right? It's, it's a, your testimony is one mixed with sorrow and grace of God. Your, your, your story echoes 124 that if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, we would have been swallowed up. We would have been swept away. We would have been taken over. And so look back on your own story. Is it not a story with sorrow and sustain, both sorrow and sustaining power of God interwoven together? I'm going to ask you that. Is your story one mixed with sorrow and God's grace? Hold on. Let me say it one more time. Let, is your story, is your testimony one interwoven with deep, dark sorrow and God's sustaining grace? Let Israel now say, let the people of God, let the church today say that greatly have I been afflicted. Again, not, we're not implanting their story directly into ours, but it's not a less true story for us than for them, that we have been afflicted in many ways. Paul will say this. We've been crushed, perplexed, but not destroyed. He says it in a very similar way, that we can look back on the faithfulness of God and say, I've been sustained through seasons of deep sorrow, and I can look back on seasons of great grace from a gracious and merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. I pray that you would just continue to, to help us to understand what your word has to say. Thank you for, for moments where we're able to, to think rightly on, on, on your word and, and think rightly on, on how your word calls us to live, um, that, that we have not been abandoned, um, and, and our, our security in you depends solely upon uh, the truth and the reality that you have, you have won the victory over sin, Satan, and death, and one day all of those things finally and fully will be put under your feet. And so we look forward to that day. Uh, we, we worship you now as people who, uh, who, who that identity marks, people who, will, who are victorious and will be victorious because of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.